Take your Bibles now, please, and let's turn to Jonah chapter 3. Now hear God's word. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and it sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is God's word. Grass withers, the flower fades. God's word stands forever. Amen. Will you pray with me? Our God and our Father, how grateful we are that your word stands forever. That it cannot be corrupted, that it cannot be lost. Because it is the word that you have spoken and revealed to us. As we come to it this morning, we come with hearts, Father, that recognize that we need your word. And we come with hearts that recognize that we need your help to understand your word. So Holy Spirit, be with us. Illuminate the truth and the meaning of these words to us and convince us of the importance of these words. Help us not to just be hearers of the word, but more and more to become doers, people who live their lives according to what you have revealed to us in your word. Father, give us grace. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts, may they be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, remember this great quote from Spurgeon. Remember that the book of Jonah records for us the education that the prophet Jonah got in what Spurgeon called the strange college of God's grace. He went to school in the belly of a fish in order to learn God's grace. He went through that terrible storm at sea and being thrown overboard into the depths of the sea and being swallowed whole, alive, by a fish in order to learn God's grace. 
And as we've seen throughout the first two chapters of the book of Jonah, even though Jonah was absolutely and certainly sinning against the Lord when he defied God and fled to Tarshish instead of going to Nineveh, and even though everything that he endured in that storm and in the belly of the fish, even though all of that came as, as consequences for his sin under the sovereign hand of God orchestrating all of that together, it was still God's great grace ultimately that was at work through those things. It was still the severe mercy of God that provided those trials, not in order to destroy Jonah, but to purify him. And so that God could accomplish His sovereign purposes of redemption for Nineveh through Jonah. So that brings us today back to this book. We've taken a couple weeks off, but we're going to look at chapter 3 here today together. In chapter 1, remember, God called Jonah to go up to Nineveh, the godless, violent, cruel, wicked, idolatrous, immoral city of the Assyrian Empire known for their violence, renowned for their cruelty and their worldliness and their immorality. And God told Jonah to speak against them, decrying their sin in contrast to God's holiness. And Jonah said, no, I'm not up for that. Don't want to do that for a lot of reasons. He was probably terrified of the Assyrians. He was probably terrified of what they would do to him. Plus, he didn't like them, and he didn't want anything good to come to him. So he fled from the face of the Lord instead of going to Nineveh. He bought a ticket on a ship headed in the precise opposite direction as far as he could get from Nineveh, planning to go to Tarshish. But we saw also how the Lord hurled this massive storm against the boat and that while all of the, the pagan sailors were calling out to their false gods, Jonah was sleeping in the bottom of the boat. And when the captain of the ship woke him up and interrogated Jonah, he told him that he was a Hebrew. He was one who feared the God of heaven, the God who made the seas and the dry land. And when they asked Jonah what they should do in order to appease God's wrath because he told him he was running from his God, Jonah said, the only thing you can do is throw me overboard. Get rid of me. And you remember at first... They didn't want to do that. They tried with all their might to avoid doing that, but eventually they realized they couldn't fight the storm, much less fight the God who had caused the storm and brought the storm. And so they threw Jonah into the sea where God had appointed a great fish to swallow him. And in chapter 2, when he was in the belly of that fish for three days, Jonah cried out to his God. Jonah went back in his mind and his heart to all of the psalms that he had memorized and sung as a part of his Old Testament upbringing and piety. And according to all of the truth of those songs, Jonah sang his own song to the Lord, crying out to God in acknowledgement of his sin, in acknowledgement of God's great power, in acknowledgement of God's holiness, and, and in, in acknowledgement of Jonah's great need for God's help. In his distress, he called out to God for mercy. And so, verse 10 of chapter 2, at the very end of chapter 2 there, that's where we left off last time, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. God had mercy on Jonah. He wasn't digested by the fish. He wasn't killed in this horrible ordeal. He was given mercy 
And then he was given a second chance. So here now in chapter 3, we really, really see the grace of God at work in Jonah's life and in the life of the people of Nineveh in spite of their unworthiness. All of them. The unworthiness of Jonah and the unworthiness of the Assyrians because that's what God's grace is, isn't it? It's undeserved favor. It's what God gives us when we haven't earned anything from Him. And when we don't deserve any good blessings from Him. And when in fact we have earned for ourselves all of the penalties of all of His judgment being poured out against us. Instead, when He gives us something good, that's called grace. When He gives us a blessing instead of the curse we deserve, that's called grace. And that's what grace is and that's who God is. Isn't it? God is the one who proclaimed Himself to be this kind of God to Moses all the way back in Exodus chapter 34. Hundreds of years before Jonah even lived. After the people of Israel had sinned against Him, He brought them up out of Egypt. He brought them across and through the Red Sea, He'd done marvelous, spectacular things for them in His love for them and His kindness to them. And yet, when they got to Mount Sinai, the people sinned against Him and made the golden calf to worship because they were impatient with Him and thought they needed something else. And so God showed His glory to Moses and said to Moses, this is the kind of God who I am in relation to the kind of people they are. The sinful, ungrateful, self-absorbed people they are. God said to Moses, I am the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Is this how you see the God who you serve? Slow to anger, not quick to punish. Abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And at the same time, He will by no means clear the guilty. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. He is just. He is righteous. But He longs to lavish people with grace at the same time. That's who God is. Always dealing with sin righteously. Never just sweeping it under the rug and letting it go but always full of mercy and grace and abounding in that steadfast love toward unworthy sinners who will come to Him and find in Him forgiveness and mercy and grace. God spoke those words to Moses hundreds and hundreds of years before Jonah got swallowed alive by this fish. And now that the fish has coughed him up onto dry land, because of that same great mercy of God, right? Because of the grace and the love of God, now we get to see the power of that grace at work in the lives of unworthy sinners who certainly have not lived their lives in a way that was worthy of God's favor or of God's blessing. So, even now as we're pressing into Advent season where, where the focus of our minds and our hearts is more and more on the birth and the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ and why He was born, why He came. He came into this world to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He came to atone for our sins. He came to reconcile us to God. He came to make peace between us and God. 
What we need to glean here from Jonah chapter 3 in terms of God's great grace is going to be of great encouragement to all of us because none of us are worthy. And all of us were sinners who were only deserving of the wrath of God, but instead were given everlasting grace. Now the first way here in Jonah chapter 3 that God reveals His grace to Jonah after the fish coughs him up, it's spelled out right there in the very first verse. Chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Key words. Saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Listen. Point one, simple. The sweetness of the grace of God is found not just in hearing God's words that say to us, I forgive you. That's awesome. I don't condemn you. That's mind-blowing. But then also in experiencing the results of forgiveness and the power of grace as God gives us a second chance. Like He did Peter, who denied Him three times on the night before His crucifixion. And then days after His resurrection, Jesus met Peter there on that beach. And He asked Peter three times, once for each transgression, do you love Me? Well, Lord, You know I love You. So then, feed My sheep. Serve Me. Second chance. I'm not giving up on You. I'm not letting go of You. Get back up. And let's go together by the power of My grace in your life. And let's see the Gospel spread to the ends of the earth. So Jonah needed a second chance, didn't he? Jonah had blown it big time. And not he didn't just have a lapse of judgment. He didn't just have a, a moment of rash foolishness where he wasn't thinking. Jonah made a decision in his mind to turn himself away willfully, deliberately, purposefully, mindfully from the face of God. Jonah had fled from God. Jonah had fled from God's will. And in the belly of the fish, Jonah had re- he didn't make up any excuses, did he? Because he recognized his absolute need for grace. The very grace, by the way, right, that God had purposed to pour out on Nineveh. Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh so I can pour out grace on them. And now, Jonah didn't want to pour out grace on Nineveh, but now Jonah finds himself no less in need of that grace than anybody in Nineveh. He's desperate for that grace. And God has given it to him by sparing his life, but also by giving Jonah a second chance. And what that means is that truly God did not hold on to Jonah's sin and God did not hold Jonah's sin against him, right? Because that's what real forgiveness is, isn't it? Not only will I say, I won't punish you for this sin, but I will say, I won't treat you in any way with regard to this sin anymore. You are fully forgiven. This is the kind of of grace that David revels in in Psalm 51, which we read earlier, right? Or Psalm 103, where he says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, quoting the words of Moses. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He lets it go for those who fear Him and who repent of their sins and turn from their sin. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins. 
nor repay us according to our iniquities. That's the kind of God who he is towards those who fear him and towards those who turn from their sin and turn to him. Are we that kind of person towards one another, by the way? People who do not deal with one another according to the sins of one another or repay others according to their iniquities. David says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's steadfast love towards those who fear Him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. So when God gives grace to unworthy sinners, God is covenanting not to hold that sin against them, not to repay them according to that sin, to remove the transgression from Himself, from His sight. And that is a glorious and wonderful blessing that God doesn't hold grudges against people who fear Him and humble themselves before Him and receive His grace and forgiveness for their sins. God didn't give up on Jonah. God didn't just say to Jonah, all right, I'm going to let you live, but I'm done with you. Now go your way, and we just, we'll, we'll just live our separate lives. I'm not entrusting my purposes to you, Jonah, because you blew it. Hugh Martin writes, It would have been a very conspicuous instance of gracious condescension and forgiving love had the Lord simply forgiven the penitent prophet of his great sin in disobeying the heavenly command and fleeing from the presence of the Lord. If God did just that, it would have been enough. But God does more. In bringing his erring servant to repentance and reinstating him in his favor, he reinstates him in office also, sealing thereby to Jonah the assurance of his own personal forgiveness by the restoration of his holy calling. Have you ever experienced anything like that in your life? Where you totally blew it against somebody and then their forgiveness meant that they were willing to trust you again, to love you again, to give you another chance. That's who God is. God in His grace is the God who gives second chances. And so having mercifully and graciously brought Jonah up out of the fish and onto the shore, He says to Jonah in fatherly love, very similar words to what Jesus was saying to Peter on the beach. Let's do this again. Let's try this again, Jonah. Yep, you fell flat and I'm helping you up. Arise now and let's get it done. Go to Nineveh. So have you ever tasted that kind of sweetness of God's grace that not only assures you of pardon for your sin, but also says to you when you've blown it, get up and let's try it again. Have you ever received that second chance giving grace from another person and tasted and known the freedom that comes when they don't hold your sin against you, but they invite you to come back in and get back up when you've failed and blown it and fallen and you don't feel worthy anymore? And you're not. But they say, that's okay, I forgive you. Let's do it again. It's one thing to say, I forgive you. It's a whole other thing to give second and third chances. And this is the kind of forgiveness that Jesus had in mind when Peter said, well, how much am I supposed to forgive people? Seventy times, and Jesus said, keep going. Seventy times seven. There shouldn't be an end to it for people who are truly, truly repentant. Repentant. 
And the merciful and gracious God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, this is how he was towards Jonah. He doesn't deal with Jonah according to his sins. He doesn't repay Jonah according to his iniquities. He removes it from the equation of his relationship to his repentant prophet. He casts that sin as far away as the east is from the west. And he says, get up, Jonah, and go to Nineveh. So this time, Jonah did. And as he went to Nineveh, he went now as a living testimony to this grace of God. He went now as a walking, living, breathing manifestation of the grace of God, which means he went as the, as the perfectly equipped person, right, to walk into a, a den of sinners and say, you need God's grace. And I can identify because I just got God's grace big time. So see, in God's awesome and sovereign goodness, even Jonah's rebellion against God ended up actually serving God's purposes ultimately. Because when Jonah rolls into Nineveh finally, he's not coming as this paragon of piety, the most righteous man who ever lived on the face of the earth in order to go and show the people an example of what awesome holiness looks like. Some epitome, right? Jonah's coming having been himself forgiven for gross and deliberate sin against God. Having been saved, having been forgiven, having been restored by the power of God's great grace. And that's exactly what qualified him to bring the word of God to Nineveh. Not some worth of his own because of how holy he was but because of how lavish the grace of God had been on him, he's perfectly equipped to go and say to them, you need this grace of God as much as I did. So Calvin says, here we learn how well God provides for us and for our salvation when He corrects our perverseness. Though sharp may be our chastisements, we know that nothing is better for us than to be humbled under God's hand. Because it humbles us and it equips us to go in that humility and to serve God and to preach the gospel. So God's mercy was severe on Jonah in the storm and in the fish. God's grace disciplined Jonah in his sin. But again, not in order to destroy Jonah, but to transform Jonah, to change Jonah, to forge Jonah into an instrument for God to use in preaching the gospel of repentance and faith in Nineveh. So how did God's grace do that? How did it change Jonah? The most important way, and first of all, is because now, having gone through everything that he's gone through in God's providence, Jonah knows himself as a sinner who's been forgiven and restored. And so he's, he's not just more willing to go now, unlike before, he's more equipped now than ever before to go and to carry out this ministry of preaching about sin and repentance and forgiveness and grace to sinful people because he's one himself and he's been made acutely aware of that. And there's a little detail in the text here which highlights this. And unfortunately, 
My translation, the English Standard Version, is what I use, and, and, and it gets it wrong. There's no perfect English translations, and this is one place where my translation gets it wrong, and as far as I can tell, it's the only one of the major English translations that gets this little detail wrong. If you've got a different English translation than what I'm using, yours probably gets it right. In chapter 1, when God first called Jonah to go to Nineveh, Remember, he said to Jonah in chapter 1 and verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Call out against it. You know, the implication of doing something against somebody. It's not exactly a spirit of, of graciousness when you're, when you're crying out against somebody. That's what God said. Call out against it in chapter 1, the first time he told Jonah to go. And the word against is ale in Hebrew, and it's right there in the text itself in chapter 1 in verse 2. But listen to me, the word ale, the word against, is not there here in chapter 3 and verse 2. But the English Standard Version says it is, right? The English Standard Version has God saying, once again, in, in chapter 3 and verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, the message that I tell you. And again, I'm betting that if you've got a different English translation, the King James, the New King James, the New American Standard, the NIV, I'm betting yours doesn't say the word against there. You know why? Because it's not there. It's not there in Hebrew. In chapter 3, verse 2. So why does the ESV include it? I don't know. I have no earthly clue, honestly. All I know is it's not in the Hebrew text. And so most English translations have God saying something like this. Now, the second time that God sends Jonah to Nineveh, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it. Not against it, to it, because that's what the Hebrew says. That's correct, according to the original text. And of course, it's pretty obvious, right, what the difference is between preaching against Nineveh and preaching to Nineveh. It's going to be the same message, but God's emphasis now has, has changed in a subtle but really important way because, see, Jonah now has changed, right? Now God wants Jonah to go to Nineveh as a forgiven and restored man, and He wants him to go with an attitude of grace. Now Jonah's got the opportunity, because of God's grace in his own life, to go to Nineveh and to call them to repent of their sin and to say, look at me. Look what God can do if you will. I sinned. I ran away from God, and He forgave me. He restored me. Like in Isaiah chapter 6, right? Isaiah saw in the temple the fullness of the holiness and the glory of God on, on vivid and powerful display and that made him see the contrast of his own sin and he cried out, Woe is me! For I am a sinner, I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people who have unclean lips for my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts, the great I Am. And then God cleansed Isaiah's lips, and when God said, who shall send me, or who shall we send? Isaiah was so eager to go as a cleansed and forgiven man, right? Send me. Here am I, Lord. Send me. So the 
The point is that the grace of God in forgiveness and in restoration should fuel the Christian life for service to God, shouldn't it? It shouldn't be that when someone sins and then repents, truly, in sorrow over their sin and turns from their sin and accepts the forgiveness of God's grace, it shouldn't be that they think that now they can't go forth and serve the Lord, right? I'm not worthy to serve the Lord because I've sinned. True, but you've been forgiven. And your sin has been cast as far as the east is from the west. And listen, if it was only the sinless people who didn't need grace that were worthy to go forth and serve the kingdom of Jesus Christ, then no one would ever go. No one would ever serve the kingdom. Jesus certainly wouldn't have picked the 12 guys He picked, right? As His original disciples, if He was picking the ones without sins. If He was picking the ones who didn't have issues in their lives. If He was picking the ones who didn't need grace because they were just doing awesome. He wouldn't have picked Peter. He wouldn't have picked James and John. He wouldn't have picked any of those guys. Wouldn't have picked Matthew. It's people who need grace. It's people who are given grace. And it's people who are grateful for grace that are equipped to serve God and to serve God's kingdom. Because grace and forgiveness fuel service to the living God. Because no one's better equipped to preach the gospel of salvation by grace alone than someone who knows that they themselves have only been saved from an eternity in hell by the unmerited grace of God alone. And Jonah, Jonah's a guy who's drunk deeply, right, of, of this grace, the refreshing waters of grace and mercy and divine love and forgiveness, and it's changed him. And it's equipped him to be now a vessel worthy to bring that grace of God to others, not in himself, but because of the grace. And he's also been changed as someone who has known great suffering. He's gone through a pretty rough time. He's known great affliction, and at the other side of it, he's found great blessing. Doesn't the psalmist say, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Psalm 119, verse 67. And then a few verses later, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Same with Jonah. Before Jonah's affliction, he went astray from God. But the affliction was good for him. And now he's been chastened. Now he's been disciplined. Now his will has been subdued. And he can obey God's word now. He can carry out God's will now. And he can even do it in Nineveh. And remember what kind of a place we're talking about with Nineveh, right? A godless place of the ancient world that was known everywhere and notorious, not just for being ungodly and worshiping false idols and indulging in immorality. They were known for their violence. They were known for their wanton cruelty against each other and against other people. And God's calling Jonah to go all by himself and walk in there. No armed escort, right? No bodyguards. All by himself. And to start telling those people that God was ready to pour out judgment on them if they wouldn't repent. That's the message, right? God tells him, 
here to go and speak the message that he gives him to speak. And in verse 4, that message is, yet 40 days, you got 40 days, guys, and then Nineveh, this whole great city, will be overthrown. Now, what's stopping those people in Nineveh from just ignoring him or from just killing him? as the violent, cruel-hearted people that they are, just dropping him right there in the dirt. What's stopping them from killing him? Nothing on this earth is stopping them. No power in Jonah. If they want to kill him, there's nothing he's going to do about it. And again, he didn't bring exactly a, a bunch of bodyguards with him, and there's no international law at that time. There's no governing body that restricts the Assyrians' actions or is ready to, to impose some kind of sanctions against them or launch an airstrike against them if they kill Jonah. I mean, Jonah, humanly speaking, could hardly expect anything less than just rejection. Now you're gonna this city is, it would take you three days to walk the breadth of this city. So he walks for a full day. He gets right into the heart of it, right into the middle of it, and he starts preaching this. 40 days and you're going to be done with He must have expected in his humanness, they're going to reject this. They're going to, at least they're going to ridicule me. They're going to mock me. They're going to abuse me. They're going to throw stuff at me. This isn't going to end well. This is going to be an abject failure, and they're probably going to kill me as a result of this mission to Nineveh. But he went anyway, right? Not because he's such a courageous guy. <laughs> we already know that's not true. Not because he's got any great resolve in himself or ability in himself or worthiness or strength of his own. It's just because he's learned this great reality of God's power. And that when God has a purpose, whatever it is, it will not and it cannot go unfulfilled. It cannot be thwarted when God has a purpose. And it was God's sovereign purpose that brought Jonah's affliction, wasn't it? And it was God's sovereign grace that brought the massive blessing in spite of that affliction. And so now walking into that big, massive, powerful, terrifying city, now, listen to Calvin explain it, Jonah is not now moved in any degree by the greatness of the city. But he resolutely follows wherever the Lord who is greater leads. And we see now that faith, when once it gains the ascendancy in our hearts, surmounts all obstacles and despises all the greatness of the world. What are you afraid of if God is with you? What are you afraid of if the Word of God is living and active? What are you afraid of if the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation? Are you afraid your neighbors and coworkers are going to make fun of you? Persecute you? Not want to be your friend anymore? Not want to eat lunch with you anymore? Say mean things behind you? What are you afraid of? That it's going to be a failure? Look what happened in Nineveh. Are you worthy of God's grace in your life? Of course you're not. None of us are. That's what makes grace, grace. Are you worthy in your own wisdom and strength and righteousness to serve God's eternal kingdom? No, of course you're not. Neither am I. But by His grace, we've all been called and we've all been and are being equipped to serve Him. Are you capable in any strength that you have in yourself to stand against 
the powers of darkness in this world, right? Whether it's the worldly powers, the, the cultural, the societal, the, the governmental powers that are rebelling against God and His people in the church of Jesus Christ, are you strong enough to stand against any of that on your own? Of course not. Well, to say nothing of the spiritual forces of darkness that are arrayed against God and His church in this world. There's not a chance that we can stand against that on our own. But like Calvin says, faith in the Almighty Sovereign God surmounts all obstacles and despises all the greatness of the world. And God's grace and God's kindness and God's faithfulness in bringing us through all kinds of obstacles, all kinds of afflictions in our lives, which we can't handle on our own, and bringing us blessing even when we were sure that things were going to end in certain disaster, all of that trains us to trust Him and to depend on His strength, not our own, as we commit ourselves to His will and not our own. So see, all along the, the trajectory that Jonah staked out when he ran away from God, actually in God's awesome sovereignty, turned out to be a straight line towards God's purposes all along. Who was it that famously said that God draws straight lines with crooked sticks? And isn't that encouraging to know in your life? That all of the crookedness, that all the things that have gone wrong, all the detours, all the trials, all the afflictions, all the sorrows, all the disappointments, even all the sin, even all the failure, that all of that is shaped ultimately by God for, for His precise purpose in your life. In order to prepare you and equip you exactly and fit you perfectly for service to His kingdom. You look at yourself and you say, well, look what I've done and look what I've made of my life and, and look at the, the fallout from all the choices I've made and you say, I'm not worthy to serve God's kingdom and, 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 and in and of yourself, you're right, you're not. But God makes straight lines with crooked sticks. And there's somebody out there that you can minister to that I can't. That you can go up to and say, hey, here's what the grace of God did in my life in a way that resonates with them that, that I could never do. And this is Jonah. Forgiven, restored, transformed, now equipped now by sovereign grace. He goes to Nineveh. He walks into the heart of that great city. And in spite of all the earthly odds stacked against him, now he's got his eyes fixed on the greatness of God. And he does what God says and he cries out, Yet forty days and you shall be overthrown. And verses 5-9 through nine record that they didn't do what Jonah might have expected. They didn't ridicule him. They didn't mock him. They didn't beat him. They didn't kill him. Verses 5-9 through nine record one of the greatest examples of mass repentance, of, of true revival in, in, the, in the history of the world. The people of Nineveh believed God. I mean, Jonah didn't hold some kind of intellectual symposium with them and try to, try to prove on the foundation of 
all of their philosophical categories and according to their worldview in a way that satisfied their intellectual curiosity. Why God? He just said, God's real and He's going to kill you. <laughs> and you need to repent. And they believed. And then in response, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth. From the greatest of them to the least of them. The word even reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne took off his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through all of Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. He proclaims a fast. Let them not feed or drink water. <laughs> but let every man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily, to God, to Elohim, the triune God, to Jonah's God. And let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, the king says, God may turn and relent and turn his fierce anger away from us so that we may not perish. And the key word in all of that is there in verse 8 when the king of Nineveh says, let everyone turn from his evil way. Let everyone turn. The word turn there is, is the absolute heart and core of the biblical concept of repentance. And biblically, repentance from sin is always, always, always required by God. He does forgive sinners. He does give unmerited grace to the unworthy. And He always calls and requires the forgiven sinner to turn from the sin which He has forgiven. And He even gives the grace whereby we are made able to do that. And biblically, true repentance consists of at least three all-important, crucial, critical elements and we see each one of them in Nineveh's response to God's Word through Jonah here. True repentance means, first of all, a heartfelt sorrow for sin. True repentance means, second of all, a genuine turning away from that sin. And thirdly, true repentance means a genuine turning to God for mercy and for grace. And for the strength to pursue holiness. You see all three of those there? In Jonah chapter 3? Look at verse 5. Look at the sorrow for sin that is expressed by the people of Nineveh. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And again, down in verse 7, when the king himself gets in on all this, he even calls the animals to fast in response to God's Word. Fasting had all kinds of purposes, and one of them was a public expression of penitence. And that's what everyone in Nineveh was doing. Putting on a public display before the God of heaven that they were repentant for their sin. They were sorry for their sin. They were dependent on nothing, not even food and water. They were dependent on nothing other than His grace, and mercy. And they also put on sackcloth. Sackcloth was like burlap. It's like this really coarse, rough 
kind of uncomfortable, scratchy fabric that you really mostly only use for making sacks, right? To carry potatoes and grain and stuff like that in. And, and, and if anybody was wearing that as clothing, it meant that they were the poorest people around. And they couldn't afford any kind of clothing, so they're just literally dressing in sacks that they find lying on the side of the road. And that's why they're all wearing it here, see? As a display of their spiritual poverty before God and their humility before Him. Wearing sackcloth meant lament. You would do it at funerals. It meant grief. It meant humility. And they all wanted to express all of that to the Lord. Lament and grief over their sin and humility in the presence of the Most High God who is holy. And verse 6, the king then, uh, he even puts on sackcloth and then he does something else. He gets up off of his throne and sits in ashes. He arose from his throne, he removed his robe, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. That's about the most profound description of self-humiliation you're ever going to find. Everything about that signals penitence before God. He gets up off his seat of authority. I'm not in charge here. He takes off his royal robe, the kingly vestments that signify his power and rule. Puts on sackcloth. I'm impoverished before the true God. And instead of sitting back down on his royal throne, he sits in a pile of ashes. And for that society and for him, that's the ultimate display of contrition and self-humiliation and submission to Jonah's God. Because along with everyone else in the city, they believed God. Because the power of God's Word changed them. Not their minds only, but their hearts and their disposition towards God. That's what the Gospel does. They believed that God was who He said He was. They believed that their sin was offensive to God. They believed that because of their sin, God was going to overthrow them in 40 days. And they believed that He's the real deal and that He could do exactly what He said He would do. Their hearts were changed because of the power of the Word of God. So they felt this godly sorrow for their sin that's reflected in all of these outward ways. And we can be confident that it wasn't just outward ways, that, that this was a, a genuine response to God because if it wasn't, all of this outward stuff that they're doing would just provoke the wrath of God all the more, Calvin says. But that's not what happens. God gives grace and mercy in light of their sorrow over sin and it's proven to be genuine because, secondly, true genuine repentance isn't only a sorrow for sin. It also means the second thing, which is turning from the sin. The word repentance means a change. A change of mind. And as J.I. Packer says, it's a change of mind that issues in a change of life. It's a change of direction entirely. And that's what we see in the king's proclamation there in verse 8, right? Let everyone turn from their evil way. Stop sinning. And from the violence that's in his hands, from the most notorious way that they were sinning. And what else does the king say in verse 8 just before that? Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. And so thirdly, repentance means 
Not only a heartfelt sorrow for sin, not just a deliberate turning from sin, but a humble, urgent turning to God for mercy and for grace. And that's not something that only happens once, is it? That's something that has to be happening all of the time in relation to the sin for which Jesus died and also which remains in our lives. Calvin says repentance is not merely at the start of the Christian life, it is the Christian life. And so if you find yourself sinning and repenting and sinning and repenting and sinning and repenting, that's what the Christian life is. Don't let that chew up your assurance. Continue to turn to God for the grace by which you know you have been saved. Wherever sin remains in us and whenever we yield to temptation, whenever we give in to sin, we go to God's Word and we let it penetrate us as the living, active, double-edged sword that it is and bring our sin to light so that the Holy Spirit can bring conviction in our consciences and stir up a godly sorrow in us so that once again we can turn from this sinful thing that we've done again this thing for which Jesus bled and died. So that we can turn from it and turn to Christ then and plead the merits of His blood and His mercy and receive assurance that His words are true. I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. That whole process, that's what John Owen calls the the mortification of sin. The, the putting to death of sin, crucifying it, like Paul says, everywhere and every time it gets manifested in our lives. And that's daily, isn't it? And it's not once a day. Owen says, be killing sin regularly or it will be killing you. Daily. It's what the Christian life is. It's always humbly, penitently turning from our sin and gratefully turning to our God who is the One who gave us the all-sufficient grace of Christ on the cross to assure us that that sin has been forgiven and washed and that we have been cleansed from all unrighteousness and that that His his grace is all-sufficient. And that all-sufficient grace and confidence in it is what transforms us and empowers us to put sin to death in our lives. And it's what conforms us to the image of Christ's glory. The power of the Gospel changes our hearts. So in faith, because they believed God, this is what the people of Nineveh did. They poured out a God-fearing sorrow for their sin. They turned from their sin and they turned to God for mercy and for grace. Look at the king's words in verse 9. After he said, let everyone turn from his evil way, he says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. How did He he get any idea that that might be a possibility? See, the warning that God sent Jonah to proclaim to them because of their sin in 40 days they're going to get overthrown, that warning itself is the conduit of God's grace. The gospel always starts with the law. The gospel always starts with proclaiming sin and calling people to repent and telling them that if they will, there's plenty of grace. There's abundant grace 
in Christ Jesus to reconcile them to God. And that's what God wants, right? Peter says, the Lord is patient. And He doesn't wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God wants people to repent and to not perish. And so His warnings about sin should not be silenced by the church. We shouldn't say, well, we can't talk about sin because God's gracious and what people really want to hear all about is God's grace. We can't hear about God's grace if they first don't understand their sin and the consequences of their sin and the warnings that God gives in His Word that the wrath of God pours down from heaven against all unrighteousness and that there is an ultimate and final wrath of God that is coming. Those warnings also carry the promise implicitly, don't they? of mercy for all of those who will repent and believe, for all who will call on the name of Jesus and be saved. While there's still time, during this time that is, as Paul calls it in Corinthians, the favorable time, the day of salvation. So, so when the king says, who knows, God may turn, he's not presuming on God's grace at all, right? He's not foolish enough to think that there's some magic formula and a bunch of stuff that he can do that automatically turns off the valve of the wrath of God. But he also knows that God hasn't destroyed them all yet. He's given them 40 days. There's time before the hammer drops. And so, he leads the city in repentance before the Lord in hopes that the Lord would lavish them with mercy even as He had with Jonah. And... Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them and He didn't do it. When they repented, God relented. Not just because they put on some outward display of fasting and sackcloth, but because those things came from the heart and were followed by turning from their sin and turning to Him for mercy. That's what He wants. True repentance. A sincere turning from sin. He doesn't just want words. He doesn't just want outward acts. He doesn't just want people to show up at church and recite liturgies and even sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and, and, and even learn lots of great theology and be able to argue with the best of them and prove that you're right and they're wrong. He, those are all really good things. Theology and singing, and all of that's good, but, but it's good if it's coming not as what we're trying to do to convince ourselves that we're okay with God or earn His approval or favor. It's, it's, it's good if all of that is the product and the outflow of hearts that sincerely turn from sin and rejoice in the grace of God that saves us from sin and that is His power to transform us by the renewing of our minds. And when Nineveh repented, and their sin was big sin, right? Their sin was piled high and deep. They were worshiping every kind of false god and idol. They were what we would call the most unredeemable kind of people in this world. They were indulging in every conceivable form of debauchery and fleshly wickedness, and they were wantonly just perpetrating every kind of violence and cruelty against human beings that they could imagine to do. But when they repented, God relented. Verse 10 says, 
And Calvin says here we learn for what purposes God daily urges us to repentance, and that is because he desires to be reconciled to us and that we should be reconciled to him. That's what God wants. That's what, that's what God desires, that we should be reconciled to him. He wants for people to come to repentance, and when they do, when they turn from their sin and when they turn to him, he turns from his wrathful judgment against sin and against the sinner. And he lovingly lavishes grace and mercy. That's what God wants. That's what we should want. Now, none of that means that God changes somehow, obviously, in terms of his essence, in terms of his mind, in terms of his will. God is perfect, both in his hatred towards sin and wrath against sin, and in his mercy and grace towards faithful repentance. God doesn't change. His opposition to wickedness never ever varies or changes. And His delight in receiving sinners who cry out to Him never varies. And so sinners are always called to repent. And if they won't, if they refuse, then the wrath of God will burn against them in their sin forever. But when they will, when they do, by the power of His Word, by the power of His Holy Spirit, by the power of His grace, when they turn from sin, when they turn to Him, He always, always welcomes them and turns from His condemnation towards them and receives them and delights to lavish them with redeeming grace and everlasting blessings. The word there in verse 10 for that response of God to Nineveh's repentance. God relented. Such a beautiful word. That's the Hebrew word, nacham. And it's, it's an explicitly emotional word. It's got a range of, of different kinds of emotions, different kinds of feelings that it describes, but they're all related to each other. Nacham refers to comfort and consolation and compassion and oftentimes pity, and sometimes relief. You think about those kinds of feelings. You felt those kinds of feelings? You've been moved in your life to feel, to feel compassion for someone who's going through a hard time, to feel pity for them? And you feel like what you want to do is, is comfort them somehow and pour out some kind of consolation on them, provide some kind of relief for their suffering, right? You can think of times in your life where you've felt those things towards someone who needed help. They've suddenly and tragically lost a loved one and you feel for them and you want to relieve their anguish. You just want to take it away. If you're a parent and your child gets hurt, what does that trigger in you? This is this deep, visceral, massive, consuming feeling of compassion. You... You watch the news and you see the horrifying stories of people suffering at the hands of terrorists because of horrifying injustices like what's going on in Israel at the hands of Hamas. And you, you sympathize with them. You feel their pain. Your heart aches for them. You want to comfort them. You want relief for them. All of that, all of those kinds of feelings and sensations, that's nakam. And the eternal unchanging, almighty God feels that, experiences that. Toward His image-bearing creatures all over this world, 
toward wayward, unworthy sinners. And when they turn from their sin, when they turn to Him, He's eager. Like the, like the prodigal son's father, right? In Luke 15, who was like, He's coming and He runs out and embraces Him. In unconditional love, and to cover Him with grace and forgiveness and mercy, that's our God. When verse 10 says God relented of the disaster that He said that He was going to bring on Nineveh because of their sin, He relented when they repented. It most literally means He had pity and compassion on them when they they repented. Well, you can't move God, of course. But the sense of the words here is He was moved to compassion. He was moved to pity, to pour out comfort, and to relieve their great burden from them. Isn't it beautiful that that's the God who we serve? And in response to their repentance, that's exactly what he did. He had compassion. He had pity on the unworthy sinners in Nineveh, even as he had on Jonah. He relieved the great burden of their sin. Because without ever saying or suggesting that God can change or that anything or anyone outside of Him can change Him, He was moved to compassion for those unworthy, repentant sinners. And He was so moved that he, He took upon Himself the burden of the sinner's sin in order to relieve them of that burden and give them His compassion and give them comfort and give them relief. This is, this is, that's what Naham means in verse 10. That's what God felt. That's what God did. That's precisely what He's done, isn't it? By sending His only begotten Son into this world to be born of human flesh and to live in perfect righteousness and to die in our place. He's had Naham on us. He's had compassion. He's had pity. He has an abiding desire to give sovereign, almighty relief to the impossible burden of our sin by bearing it Himself. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. He suffered it for us that we might be eternally relieved of that all-consuming, crushing burden. And by giving us the grace to believe on Jesus and to turn from our sin, and to turn to Him, God has in His omnipotent, sovereign, divine power relieved us all of the infinite burden of sin and death and everlasting condemnation. Jesus has turned the wrath of God forever away from all who believe by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. So ask yourself, given that that's what God did and who God is, will we continue to indulge in the sin for which Jesus died? Or will we daily turn from it and repent of it and mortify it and crucify it and put it to death in our mortal bodies? All of it. The pride, the selfishness, the lust, the anger, the fleshly desire at that level of of desire and attitude that then gives rise to things we do outwardly? Will we mortify all of that because Jesus turned God's wrath away from us on account of all of that? That's what He came and suffered and died to bear upon Himself. Are you going to live in it still? Are you going to give grace like that to one another? Are we going to be God's conduits of grace like that to the world? 
Let's pray together today. As God's forgiven, redeemed people for the grace that we need every single day to do all of that, to turn from sin, to forsake ourselves, to put sin to death, to love one another so that the world looks at us and when we're loving one another this way says they must be the people of Jesus Christ. And then to go and to be that love and to be that gospel, to be that living display of Christ's love and to proclaim that truth of the gospel to the world around us. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for Your grace. Thank You that even though we are unworthy, You have washed us and cleansed us and forgiven us and given us the grace even to be able to believe. You have opened our blind eyes. You have softened our hard hearts. You have given life to our dead souls by the living water of the pure Word of the true Gospel, which is Your power unto salvation for all who believe. And so, Father, in our belief, help us to honor You by putting sin to death in our lives. Help us to love one another the way that You have loved us. Help us to forgive and give grace in the way that You have to us. And Father, help us to never think of ourselves as unworthy and unable to serve You because it is Your grace which makes us able and which makes us worthy. And so as we sing praises to You and come to the table, would You continue to feed us and nourish us and use us for the sake of Your kingdom and glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Will you stand with me?